Well, I'm so glad that you're all here with us this morning. Um, what we're doing as a church is that we're going through a study that's called Believe. And what we're doing as we journey together on Sunday mornings through our Sunday school classes, which meet at 10 for all ages, and then through our worship time together, where we come together and I preach or we have this sermon, is that we're building a foundation about what we believe. We're talking about key um, truths that the Bible has given us so that we know what we believe and we know what we stand for so that if we, not if, but when we have conversations with those who don't have the same values and beliefs that we have as Christians, we can let them know what we believe. And the same is true for when we have conversations with our friends who are Christians but might have a slightly different or uh, vastly different understanding about some different topics of Scripture that we come across, that we are prepared, that we know what God's Word says, that we can read it for ourselves, that we can have God teach us through His Holy Spirit, which is God, that we know what His Word says so that we can be prepared to talk about our faith so that we just don't go, well, I don't know. But you know what? Sometimes that answer is going to come from all of us, myself included, and that's okay. But what we're doing is building this foundation so that as we're journeying together and as we study in 2016, that we're talking about these three components to our study. How do we think and how do we act and how do we be like Jesus? So this key question that we're trying to ask each week as we come together these first 10 weeks of our study is that what do I believe? What do I believe to be true that I can take from God's word? And then as we go on a little bit further into the year, we're talking about how do I act like Jesus. And the question that we're going to ask is, what should I do? And the third part, B, how do we think, act, and be like Jesus? There's a question we're going to ask of who am I becoming? So if we look at that kind of holistically, and if we look at all of those together, we're asking ourselves collectively as the church and as we come together and worship, and we're examining it through the lens of Scripture, because that's how we understand God and how he communicates to us. We're answering the questions, what do I believe? And because of that, what should I do? And on top of that, what I believe and what, I, what am I doing, who am I becoming? Because the picture that God gives us in the Bible is that when it comes to our faith, when it comes to our salvation, it's not just a, a one-point-in-time event, but it's something that we continue to work on through our entire life. There's a process that we're always achieving, that we're always trying to be more like Jesus. We're trying to honor what he's told us to do. And we're not doing that by our own power because when we do it by our own power, we mess up. But we do it by seeking after God and seeking after his word in the Bible. We encourage one another. Hopefully we are encouraged when we come together in times like this where as the church we come together and we sing and we give and we commune and we remember and we pray. But we figure out what God has taught us. Now, sometimes some of the things that we talk about are going to affirm what maybe you already believe. And in other cases, it's going to stretch you to sharpen what you believe. In other cases, you might go, what? I, I didn't know that that's what the Bible said. But that happens to all of us, and that's okay. But as we come together and as we learn, we're going to better understand who God is and then in turn who we are and what God is asking for us to do. So one of our big topics that we're talking about today is salvation. It's one of those words that kind of gets Christianized a lot, and we use it within the context of church, and we don't really know how to use it outside of that anywhere else. So I want us to be able to talk about that word and what it means and what it implies and what the Bible has taught us, not only what it is, but why do we need it and how do we obtain it and where does it come from? And really it all comes back to another foundational question of what do I have to do to have a relationship with God? 
What do, what do you have to do to have a relationship with God? And I'll let you know something. This isn't a secret. God tells us in the very beginning of our Bibles in the book of Genesis. He tells us that when he created the first people, Adam and Eve, it was easy. There was no sin that was in the world, that the relationship that they had with God, they didn't have to work at it. They just had it. And that's how God wanted all of us to be. That's how God designed us to exist, that we would just have this relationship with God, that we could walk in the garden with God in the cool of the evening, as was the custom for Adam and Eve to do. But all of that got wrecked when sin came into the world and everything about the world. It's still good because God created it, and we as people are the the capstone of God's creation. But sin came into the world, and it messed everything up. It messed up where we live. It messed, messed up how hard we're going to have to work in life. But God always designed us to work. But the degree to which how hard we're going to have to work to sustain and to help take care of ourselves is different. Our relationship with God is different because sin came into the world. But when we are answering this question together of what do I have to do to have a relationship with God, let me start out with this, that God wants to have a relationship with you with every person. But just because it applies to every person, that also means that it applies to you. Every person, every name, every family that is represented here, God desperately wants to have a relationship with you. Okay? He does. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, expounds upon it this way. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This tells us that the Lord isn't dilly-dallying. He's not delaying, but he has a plan, and his ways are better than our ways, and he knows, and his timing is better than our timing, so he knows when he's going to act and when it's going to be best. And he's not slow to keep his promises, but he's always keeping his promises. He is patient towards us. Amen? Are you glad that God is patient towards you? I know that I am. God not wishing that anyone should perish, but that everyone should reach repentance. So this verse, 2 Peter 3.9, builds upon this really, it helps you know what I said in the first part is true, that God wants a relationship with you. That God wants a relationship with every person. But because sin came into the world, it messed up that perfect relationship that God wanted us to have. But God never gave up on us, and he never will. He is always there for us, and he has a plan for us. So God wants this relationship with us, with you, with every person. And he provided that way through Jesus, period. There is no way to come to the Father outside of Jesus. There's no way. God provided the way through Jesus. I want to read a couple of scriptures on that as well. I could read a ton more scriptures than just these couple, but I always got to be selective because I always preach longer than I think. You know what? I'm okay with that. Um, nervous laughter there, Phil. I heard that. <laughs> so it happens when you laugh last, and I know you well enough to pick on you. Be warned. No. But God provided the way through Jesus. Uh, John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Without Jesus, there's no chance. There's no way. That's why us as Christians, you, we as the church, it is our job to share our faith with others. Whether if we're comfortable with it or not, doesn't matter. Whether you think you're good at it or not, I don't care. 
God has called for us to share our faith with others. And the interesting thing is that oftentimes I find when I'm not good at something and I do it more often, I get at least marginally better at it, less bad at it, maybe to put it that way, to use some really good grammar this morning. But w- the more that we, tr- that we do the things that God has called for us to do, I think the more that he teaches us and he guides us and he directs us and he gives us the words to say, so it doesn't really matter if we're comfortable with it or not. It doesn't really matter ultimately if you believe it or not. What matters is what's true and what came from God's word. And what he told us is that there is no way to come to the Father except through Jesus, period. Without Jesus, you're lost. And you need a Savior. And Jesus said, no one can come except through me. Again, another passage I told you I could read a, a lot, and I'm not going to, but Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Builds upon John 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is one way to the Father, and it's Jesus. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, we're reminded again, and that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Apart from Jesus, there is no salvation. If it wasn't for Jesus, there would be no Savior, and we would be a a bigger mess than we already are, or already are. So God God wants a relationship with you. He has since he created us, and he still does, even when we messed it up with the sin that's in our life. And Jesus was the culmination of God's plan, that he came and he lived the perfect life, and he sacrificed his life. His blood was shed so that our sins could be forgiven. What can wash away our sins is the little hook on the end of the song as we, nothing but the blood of Jesus. That was the only thing that was going to atone, the only thing that would wipe clean forever your sin. Anything else would ever fall short. Very simply, we need help. All right, I won't always put you guys in the same boat that I'm in. Very simply, I need help. We all need help with our faith. And what we believe, every person, all the time, we need help. And the help that we need is talked about in the Bible. It's talked about through this word, salvation. It may sound strange to us, and as I said, it's one of those words that we use in church a lot. And if I would ask you to use that word, define that word without using that word, right? That's what teachers do, right? Define the word without using the word so you can let me know that you know what it means. We go, and sometimes we don't, we don't know how to articulate it. Even when we know what it means, it's hard for us to express in words what that actually means. And the important thing for us as Christians or whichever is that we know what we believe and not just in a way where we're repeating stuff like a parrot, but that we can understand it and we know what it is and we can put it in our own words, that we can share with others about our faith and why it's so important, so important. And why we know that it's true that God wants a relationship with every person. And also why we know it's true that Jesus is the only way and there's no other way to the Father except through Jesus. Acts 4.12 and the other verse I read, John 14.6 and a lot of other verses that I didn't read. Salvation is so much more than just I want to get to heaven. A lot of times I think that we're guilty of thinking about that. We think salvation is I get to spend eternity with God in heaven. And that's true But there's so much more. It's so much more than that. Salvation that we read about in the Bible that God gave us in his word is so much more. The the Greek word for to save that salvation comes from is sudzo. It's kind of a fun word to say. It reminds me like washing clothes or something. Suds sounds like an off-brand laundry detergent you go buy somewhere. Sudzo is what the word is. That means 
to heal, to make well, and to restore health. Depending on the context that the word is used, it has those different meanings. To heal, to make well, to restore health. Now, I wonder, could it be that there are places in your life where you need to be made well? And we're talking about this idea of salvation, whether you're far from God and you haven't accepted Jesus yet, or maybe you are a Christian, new, or maybe you've been a Christian your whole life, and you're like, yeah, but we have to understand what this word, what the Bible teaches us about salvation and what it means for us. Now, at the heart of this word, I told you that it's got these different, not different meanings, but different nuances to this important word, to heal, to make well, to restore health. In Luke chapter 7, there's this story that Jesus goes to eat at a Pharisee's house. And I'm going to highlight a couple different stories from the Gospel of Luke today. I'm not going to read all of those scriptures. I may reference a couple of those. But I'm going to tell you about those. I encourage you, if you want to dig deeper into those stories, grab your Bibles, go back uh, online. You can listen to the sermon later and get the scripture references and find those. But read it to kind of have that whole story flushed out. But I'm going to walk through a couple stories with us this morning. We're talking about our salvation. And we're talking about how Jesus encountered people. And the first comes from Luke chapter 7. Jesus goes to eat at a Pharisee's house. Now, we always kind of see as we spend time in the Bible and reading that when Jesus interacts with the Pharisees, usually interesting things happen. It's kind of neat how Jesus interacts with the Pharisees, especially when here where he goes out of his way to go to the Pharisee's house to eat among the Pharisees and the elite of their society and to kind of see what happens. No sooner had Jesus taken his place at the Pharisee's house, eating with them that a, how do I put a woman of the city or a woman of the night or someone that didn't have the best reputation in their town came in and somehow got in, regardless of how she got there, we could speculate there, but she came in and she anointed Jesus' feet with very expensive perfume. Now, some would have looked at that and said, well, she is wasting that. You could have used that on so many other things. And really what the Pharisees think is they think that this discredits who Jesus is. Because Jesus, if he was a prophet, and if he had a message that came from God, that he would have known he shouldn't affiliate with this woman. Because she isn't someone that anyone should be seen with or ever spend time around. So what the Pharisees thought, because Jesus allowed this woman to clean his feet, that that proved that he wasn't God because he would have known better. If he was a true prophet and had the word that came from God, he would never have allowed that to happen. He wouldn't have allowed her to be around him or talk to him or touch him or do anything. And now what happens in the story is that Jesus hears something that the Pharisees are saying to themselves, which pretty much proved that Jesus is a prophet. You get kind of weirded out when somebody responds out Have you ever done that? Has someone said something you were thinking in your head, and you're like, did I say that out loud? Whoops, sometimes, or I I said the quiet thing out loud, and I wasn't supposed to do that. But what happens is that Jesus responds to something that was thought. I'm going to read a couple verses, Luke 7, 41 and This is after they said, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman she is, and he would have had nothing to do with her because she's a sinner. Verse 41 and 42, Jesus taught this way. He said, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? What's the answer to that? The one that is forgiven little or the one that is forgiven much? 
the one who is forgiven much. And Jesus teaches us this principle that's true, that he is forgiven little, loves little. And he is forgiven much, loves much. Now, I also think, this is Joel speaking here, that a lot of times we as people get ourselves in trouble if you ever think that you're in the basket, well, I've been forgiven little. <laughs> Sometimes we think other people have to be forgiven a lot more than, than we have. And I would encourage you, if that's your thinking, you may want to spend some time praying about that and asking God to sharpen or to teach and to read here because Jesus taught us if we feel like we're forgiven little, we're going to turn around and we're going to maybe forgive others just a little bit. Or we're going to turn around and love others just a little bit. Not the full, enormous measure by which God came to forgive us. As that story kind of ends, what Jesus says to the woman, he tells her that her sins are forgiven, and then he tells her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now that word saved is this word sozo that we're talking about. It's the same word. He tells her to go in peace, which really is telling her to go into peace. Go and sin no more and change your lifestyle. And you have a new life and your sins are forgiven. All right, so that's story one. The second story I want to go to is very close to that. It's in Luke chapter 8, uh, around verse 40-ish is where you're going to find it. Like I said, I'm not reading the whole thing uh, in our time together today. But there's another story where Jesus is walking through a crowd of people, and Luke, as he tells the story, the physician who is writing, he says that the people pressed around him. And that word pressed is a very strong word that Luke used. He said that to press around one, so almost to suffocate him, is what the meaning of that word has. So these crowds are coming around Jesus, and they're, off, they're suffocating Jesus just about. They're just pressing onto him so hard because they want to hear what he's teaching. They want maybe to be healed. They want to know what's going on with this teacher from Nazareth, that the crowds are pressing in on Jesus so strong that it's almost suffocating. And what happens is somebody reaches out, and the Bible tells us that they touch the very fringe of Jesus' garment, and Jesus can tell that a power had left him, and he turns to his apostles, and he says, wait, who touched me? And I can see his apostles kind of laughing and going, well, Jesus, pretty much everybody within arm's reach is reaching out, and they're touching you. But Jesus says that there's something that's different. Somebody reached out and that I need to know who it was. And Jesus knows that a power had gone out for him. Then the woman came out and told everyone that she had touched him and that she had been immediately healed. And Jesus said to her, daughter, you have been made well. Go in peace. You know what happens? This is a woman that had been dealing with an, an ailment that she spent all of her money and she couldn't have it fixed and yet she came to Jesus and she touched just a fringe of his garment. And she was healed. And Jesus' response to her is, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. It's that same word, sozo, that's used in our previous story, that you've been made well, that you've been healed. One has to do with the forgiveness of sins and the other has to do with physical health. And they're still connected together at the heart of what we need. We need someone that's going to heal us. We need someone that's going to save us. We need somebody that's going to restore us. Another example is found in uh, Luke chapter 19. This is a well-known story uh, of Jesus. It's a short story about a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, which in his terms, it meant that he didn't have any friends. Or to put a modern-day equivalent to that, it meant he was a Georgia Tech fan. All right? He didn't. <laughs> 
Yeah, I thought of that one earlier. I'm going to use it. But Zacchaeus didn't have any friends, so he needed some friends. So Jesus said, I'm going to go spend some time with Zacchaeus. <laughs> because nobody wanted to spend time with Zacchaeus. Because he turned his back on his people and his family. And he ripped people off for a living. That's what he did. And he stole from them to pay money to the government and taxed way more than he ever had to. And what Zacchaeus did, because he wanted to see Jesus. He climbed up in a tree because he was so desperate just to see what was going on with Jesus. And Jesus came to Zacchaeus and he said, come down because I'm going to your house today. Really, Jesus said, I must go eat with this man. And later on, as you read in that story, Jesus, much to the shock and surprise of everybody else around in the crowd, they all thought Zacchaeus was the least deserving of any of these jokers to spend time with Jesus. Because have somebody in your house was a very intimate thing. You didn't just invite people that you kind of cared about into your house. It meant that you were spending time with them intentionally. Zacchaeus didn't deserve to have Jesus in his house. Well, yeah, that's true. But neither do I. None of us do. But Jesus sought out Zacchaeus, and he needed to go see him. And what it tells us is that day that salvation has come to the house of Zacchaeus because he has put his faith in Jesus, and he has chosen to obey, and he has chosen to believe Jesus. And this word sozo, it's the derivative of where we get our word Savior in salvation, that Jesus came to heal, that Jesus came to make us whole, that Jesus came to restore us, that he came to save Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was lost in his pursuit of wealth. Now, I think at, all, at different times in our life, we're all guilty of pursuing something that's not Jesus. And we're lost because we're following after something that can't satisfy us. But what Jesus did is that he came and Zacchaeus met Jesus. And Zacchaeus had a change of heart and he moved to a new way of living. But salvation is so much more than just, I get to go to heaven when I die. So I don't have to spend eternity with the devil. Salvation is really about getting into heaven before you die. Because what you'll see is that if you go and you read the stories of Jesus, he goes around walking and teaching that the kingdom of God is at hand, that it's near and it's now, and that Jesus came to, to start it, that he came to inaugurate the kingdom of heaven here on earth. So our salvation, that being saved, that having God's forgiveness on me by Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, is more than just going to heaven to be with God forever, which that's and great, and that is a part of it. But there's more. It's about what we're to do now and how a little bit of heaven can come down to earth because we as the church are living like Jesus has called for us to do, that we're healed and that we're made well. One woman, as we told the story trusted doctors to heal her, and she reached out to Jesus, and she was saved. Another woman trusted her body to support her, but then she worshiped Jesus, and she was saved. Another man, Zacchaeus, put all of his hope in what he could do, and how he could swindle, and how he could work hard, and how he could rip people off, and he put all his hope in wealth to give him life. And Jesus came into his home, and he was saved. And our question for us or for you is, what are you trusting in life? What are you trusting above anything else? Is it money? Is it a person? Is it a relationship with another person? 
Is it your family? Is it your job? Is it your finances? Is it something that you're good at? Is it accolades that you get? Is it a plaque that you put up on the wall? Is it the car that you drive? Is it your marksmanship? Is it your skill when it comes to something? What are you trusting in this life? And the bigger question on that is what are you trusting more than Jesus? Because God wants a relationship with you, and because sin came into the world, it all got messed up. And Jesus is the only way that you can have a relationship with God. And really, Jesus tells us, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. You'll obey me. You'll do what I told for you to do. Jesus came announcing that the kingdom of heaven is available. It's a present. It's close at hand. He said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 14, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Anyone has access to it, but few walk the path. In Matthew seven fourteen, Jesus says, for narrow is the way, and hard is, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Matthew chapter 7. Okay, so, so now what do we do? What Jesus is doing is Jesus calls us, every person, to repent, into repentance. Repentance is another one of those kind of church words that we use a lot. We hear repent and we think of sin, big or small, that we need to turn away from. And there's truth to that. We need to repent and turn away from our sin. But another aspect or a way to add to our understanding of what repentance is, it's a change of way that we think. And I know a lot of times for me, I have to change the way that I think that I can do it all by myself, that I can figure it out, that I don't need to rely on God, that I can figure it out, that I can work hard, that I can do it myself. And when you find yourself thinking that, or when I find myself thinking that, I need to repent of that way of thinking, and I need to change and realize that God has given me a way. And there's only one way by which we'll be saved, and that's through Jesus. I think one of the ways that we as Christians and in general get ourselves in trouble is we like to pick out our favorite verses and talk about those. Um, but how we always best understand the Bible is we let Scripture interpret Scripture. It's a basic, a basic principle of really good, sound Bible study. I want to let God's Word interpret how I understand God's Word. So if I'm reading something, let's say, in the book of Romans, and I don't know exactly what it says, what's going to help me to read that whole chapter? And if I still can't understand what it means, read the whole book, read the chapters around it, and just expand so that I know what it's talking about. And for us, we kind of pick up and we read a chapter or a verse here and there. But as God's word was written and given to his people, there weren't chapter and verses. Those are good things for us to have and use because we can reference things and we can find it. And they're really helpful and I'm really glad that we're there. But how the first Christians would have understood all of these stories, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, and Romans, and all these letters that were written that are books in our Bible, they would have had the entire thing read to them at once sometimes more than once. So what happens when you have the whole thing read to you at once? Well, you can understand what's going on in the story. You can remember what the key points were, what things were talked about. We highlighted this a little bit in Sunday school. But when it comes to our salvation and what we do, it's easy for us to grab a verse here or there. But I think what we'll see that the Bible teaches us about our salvation, we're called to repent. We're to change the way that we think about life and maybe even what you think about salvation, why you need it, how we come about it. And what the Bible tells us to do, what we have the normal response in the book of Acts, which is where the church was started and founded, is that people accepted, they realized who Jesus was and that they were baptized. That's the response. The people were cut to the heart in Acts chapter 2, and the response from, they were talking to the apostles, what do I need to do to be saved? And they said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
So what we have in that pattern is repeated over and over and over again in the book of Acts where the normal response when people say, I, wanna, I want what Jesus has and I want to be obedient to his teachings and I want this salvation that only comes through him. What do we do? We're going to repent. We're going to believe. We're going to be baptized and we're going to confess what we believe. And we're going to have this gift of the Holy Spirit that comes on us. Now, every now and then, people might recant that and say, well, uh, there's a verse. Well, what is it? Mm, let's go. Uh, Romans 10, 13. Let me read a verse. This was in some of our reading for Believe during the week. This is also um, some of the things that will come up here. Because when it comes to saying yes to Jesus, when it comes to your salvation and what you're called to do, what the normal response is that the people believed and that they were baptized. And there's something really powerful about baptism and what it does. It's not just an outward sign of an inward faith. I don't think that's true. It's not. There's more to it than that. And if you don't think that's true, I challenge you to dig into scriptures and see more what the Bible says about baptism. All right, here's my example from Romans chapter 10, verse 13. So remember this under the premise of you can take one verse and whether intentionally or unintentionally, you can kind of twist it if you want to make it mean something that maybe it didn't originally fully intend to mean. Romans chapter, chapter 10, verse 13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay. That's what it says very clearly, very plainly. Everyone that calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What in the world does be saved mean? Well, I think how we understand Romans ten thirteen is within the context of the bigger book. The whole picture, the whole thing that Paul is telling us is he is the writer of this, church, this book of Romans, inspired by God. But if you back up in the book of Romans, um, to, in my, one of my favorite passages that talks about the power of baptism and what it does is Romans chapter 6. Now, if you'll humor me for just another moment, what I told you earlier is true how we properly understand God's word anywhere. You could use it with Romans. You could talk about it in Genesis. You could go into Revelation anywhere. For us to understand the Bible, let's let the Bible teach us about what the Bible says. So for me to best understand what in the world Paul's talking about and really what God's talking about in Romans chapter 10, not just that one verse, but I need to back up and understand the overall teaching about what's going on in the whole book of Romans. Romans chapter 6, talking about sin. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Shall we keep sinning because we know Jesus will forgive us? No, by no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? It's talking to Christians. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, he shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. There's this powerful connection that Christian baptism, when we're obedient to what God has called for us to do, connects us with the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And what that is, that's the gospel. The death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, they all play into what Jesus did and how God is working and how we come about our salvation. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that we deserve, but it's something that God freely gives to us. And ultimately, regardless of where we stand or what we believe about things, we know that God is just and that God is right. And God is going to make the decision that is right and the decision that is fair when it comes to anyone and their salvation. 
But when it comes to what we do, we have this normal pattern that's just repeated over and over and over again. And I love the way that Francis Chan repeats it when people are asking him about, well, why should I be baptized? His response is, why not? Because what we see when people came to faith for the very first time, they believed the normal pattern for them to do was to go and to be baptized. And then they got this power of the Holy Spirit that would come on them. Now, every now and then, you might have noticed this or you might read it if you spend time in the book of Acts. You go, well, I read this story somewhere in the middle of the book of Acts where there were believers, but the Holy Spirit came on them before they were baptized. Well, you know what? God doesn't have to work in ways that I understand all the time. <laughs> right? Just because there's a normal pattern doesn't mean God has to repeat that all the time. But what we have, by and large, over and over again, when people believe the response was to confess their faith and to be baptized. And there's a bunch of other scriptures we could talk about, the powers of baptism. I told you Romans 6 is my favorite, um, but there's a lots of others that, there's something very, very powerful about what baptism does. There's nothing magical about the water. It's cold. We can warm it up if we know ahead of time for a baptism. It could be in a creek. It could be in a pool. It could be here. There's nothing really special about who does it. What if a Christian wants to be, what if somebody wants to be baptized? There's no Christians or preachers around to do it. Could a non-Christian baptize them? I think so. Somebody could. All right. It's about being obedient to what God has called for us to do. And there's so many passages, there's so many places in God's word that it talks about this powerful connection, that it's our baptism that connects us to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And if we're not connected to the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, God wants a relationship with you. And the only way is through who? Jesus. And if I'm not connected with that, I don't want us to be fooled. I don't want us to live our lives afraid. Well, what happens if I'm having a bad day and Jesus comes back? Am I going to go to hell? Probably not. Not my call. Okay. Off the record. Okay. But what, Jesus, what the Bible tells us is that if we're like fearful to the point that it worries you to, um, to sickness, that well, I'm having a bad day, what if Jesus comes back? Really what we're doing is we're not trusting in the saving power of Jesus' blood on the cross. To cover our sins. Right? There's a fine line and there's tension there, and I recognize that, and I understand that. And that's why the Apostle Paul, who God used to write Romans, he also said we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to, to allow us to follow after God. But <laughs> to kind of, not to counteract, but just a little on-the-fly lesson here, Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, that's it. You don't have to be baptized. That's what it says, Romans 10, 13. What about what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 21 and 22? Where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one that who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Okay, what we do is we understand it. By reading more, by understanding, well, what, what all does the Bible teach us about this? And praying and saying, God, will you show me? Because he will. God, teach me through your Holy Spirit. And Father, help me to humbly come before you um, as I understand your word. 
I love what Bob Lowry, my New Testament professor at Lincoln, said. He said, context is king when it comes to us understanding the Bible. And second is humility, okay? It absolutely is. If you've got questions about anything that I've talked about, I would love to talk with you more about that. If something didn't come across right or if I said it wrong, which I've done at least once in my three-ish years here, I'm bound to do it again sometime, right? But, I mean, we'd love to have conversations with you. If it's really hard, I'll send you to Jeff. He's got some really good answers. Um, but how we understand our salvation and how we are saved. And also there's an important distinction, and I'm going to close out with this, is that God is just and we can trust him. And whatever he's going to do, we can trust. God is trustworthy and loving and kind. Okay. There's also a distinction to be made, I think, when we read stories, even with the ones that I highlighted today, the story in Luke 7 and Luke 8 and Luke 19 with Zacchaeus. There's a difference between what happened before Jesus' death and resurrection and what happens afterwards. In the same way that the criminal on the cross that's next to Jesus, that's a different set of circumstances of where you and I live today because you and I are on the other side of Easter. We're on the other side of the resurrection. There's some different things that are in play with that, okay? But what we have is this pattern. (laughs) People believed they were baptized for the forgiveness of their sins and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to pray as we close. Would you bow with me, please? Father, to speak on your behalf is a, is a daunting task. God, for any of us, whether if we're working, talking as a preacher and in front of a group of Christians or if we're sitting down next to our buddy or a friend or our family member and we're sharing. God, it's, it's challenging. But God, it is not something that we do by ourselves. God, it's not something that we as Christians that we have to do isolated from you and the power that we have from your Holy Spirit that we can discern. Father, that we can learn from your word as we spend time in it. And God, I pray that we as the church, as we spend time reading your scriptures, that they transform us. God, that we come to understand you in the best possible way. And Father, when we come to those times in our life where you're going to teach us that our, our understanding of you is short, God, that we'll learn those lessons and we'll learn them well. And may we be humble enough to recognize that there's room for us to grow, every single one of us. But God, I'm so grateful for what you have done in Jesus. God, that through him, we have access to you. And because of that, God, we can be really assured of what the promise that we have. That if our life is covered by the blood of Jesus, God, we're a part of your kingdom. And really, that's what Jesus was talking about when he was saying that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand because it's here with us. God, I pray that you use us as the church to go and to take that command that Jesus gave his disciples after his resurrection, before he ascended back up to heaven, to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that God, that you have commanded us to do. Father, may we as the church here be just that. May we be disciples who make more disciples. God, it's not about us or a name, but it's about the one name, the Savior, that will save us, that will heal us, that will restore us. God, that will allow us to be with you forever. Father, we love you. I love you. Thank you for your grace, which covers our sin. 
thank you that you gave us this gift of salvation that we can't earn, but God, you bestowed it upon us. But it is up to every person to make the decision for themselves who they're going to trust and who they're going to follow after. Father, use us as the church to reach those that are far from you because that's what Jesus did. And if we're not doing what Jesus did, we need to repent. God, thank you for this place and for these people and for the freedom that we have to worship you. May we not take that for granted. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.